Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, welcome back. I think I say this a lot, but I really like this article. This is by some MDs and a PhD, Lily Aria, who is an MD, Neil Jackson, MD, Deborah Myers, MD, and Anila Verma, who is a PhD. There's also a discussion with John Delancey at the end that I'm totally going to go into. I'll leave it for the end. That way, if you just want the article bit, that's cool. But if you want to hear some of that discussion, you can stick around. I'm a big John Delancey fan here. Okay, the objective of this study was to determine the incidence of new onset urinary incontinence after forceps and vacuum delivery compared with spontaneous vaginal delivery. It's estimated that at some institutions, as many as 10% of deliveries are by forceps, whereas 3.3% are by vacuum extraction. Several studies have shown that vaginal delivery increases the risk for urinary incontinence compared with abdominal delivery. It's not clear whether instrumental vaginal delivery is an additional risk factor, but what we do know is that that prolonged pudendal nerve terminal motor latency has been noted after forceps delivery and in women with stress incontinence. Recent studies using perineal sonography revealed that bladder neck mobility is increased after forceps delivery and in women with genuine stress urinary incontinence. So there's even less data on the role of vacuum deliveries in the development of urinary incontinence, but in retrospective studies, there was no association of urinary incontinence with vacuum extraction found. In a prospective study, one researcher reported that postpartum urinary incontinence was more common in 2 of 22 women, so that's 9.1%, after vacuum delivery compared with 16 of 258 women, which would be 6.2% after a spontaneous delivery. But that difference wasn't really significant. Okay, so on to the materials and the methods. The study design was a prospective study in 315 primiparous women delivered by forceps. So that was an N of 90 for forceps, vacuum with an N of 75, or spontaneous vaginal delivery, which was an N of 150. Follow-up for urinary incontinence was at two weeks, three months, and one year after delivery, so they really staggered that. Between January and June in 1999, the labor room logs at their institution were screened every morning by a research nurse to identify patients who met the eligibility criteria for the study. Inclusion criteria included primiparity, vaginal route for delivery, age 18 or older, gestational age of more than 37 weeks, and being accessible by telephone. Exclusion criteria included a history of urinary incontinence before or during pregnancy, women who delivered by C-section, women with known diabetes or a neurologic disease, and women who did not speak English. The enrolled women were then called by telephone by the research nurse at two weeks, three months, and one year after delivery. The following five questions on urinary incontinence were asked. One, whether urinary leakage was present. Two, whether leakage was provoked by physical stress or with coughing. Three, whether leakage was accompanied by a strong desire to void. Four, the frequency of that leakage. So if it's occurring more like less than once a month, one or several times a month, one or several times a week, or every day or every night. And then the last one being the amount of leakage, so drops or little versus more. 
The incontinence impact questionnaire short form was also administered, so women were also asked whether they were performing pelvic floor exercises daily or if they were being treated by a UTI. All definitions are according to the International Continent Society, unless otherwise stated. So urinary incontinence was defined as the presence of urine loss of any amount that has occurred on at least two occasions. The type of forceps or vacuum delivery, so outlet, low, or mid-pelvic, was according to the definition of ACOG. An anterior laceration was defined as a laceration of any depth that was located on the anterior vaginal wall. A posterior laceration was defined as any laceration that was located on the posterior vaginal wall but did not involve the anal sphincter, and if the anal sphincter involvement was recorded, then that was defined as an anal sphincteric injury. Severity of incontinence was also calculated from information based on frequency and amount of incontinence, so we're thinking those questions four and five that they asked, as well as using a severity index developed by Sandvik et al. So the severity of urinary leakage was given a score, and score was given based on that frequency of leaking, so one being less than once a month, two being one or several times a month, three being one or several times a week, and then four being every day or every night and the amount of leakage. So one being a drop or little, and then two being more than a drop or little. I don't know how objective little is, but we'll go with it. They then go into a statistical analysis and which techniques were used for determining power, analysis of variance, etc. For the results, there's a table in this study that obstetric data of the three groups of women are presented. The three groups of women are comparable with respect to age and ethnicity. The duration of the first and the second stage of labor and infant birth weight was similar in all three groups. A higher percentage of women in the vacuum and the forceps delivery group received epidural anesthesia than in the spontaneous delivery group, but the difference was not statistically significant. Episiotomies and anterior and posterior vaginal wall lacerations were significantly more common in the forceps and vacuum delivery groups than in the spontaneous vaginal group. Anal sphincteric involvement was also significantly more common in the forceps group than in the vacuum and the spontaneous delivery groups. Episiotomies were actually performed in 97% of the vacuum group and 100% of the forceps group. For spontaneous deliveries, only 63% received an episiotomy. There was no association between the presence of urinary incontinence at any follow-up period after delivery and maternal age, ethnicity, infant birth weight, length of first and second stage of labor, use of epidural anesthesia, and type of forceps or vacuum delivery, so mid, low, or outlet. No relationship of urinary incontinence was seen with the presence of anterior or posterior vaginal wall laceration, anal sphincteric injury, or the presence of episiotomy. Overall, 42 of the original 315 women, so that's 13%, complained of SUI at two weeks post-delivery. But then at the three-month interview, 9% complained of urinary incontinence, unspecified what type. At one year, this was 5%. So of note, the researchers lost some of those women during follow-ups, so that's worth mentioning. Of those 42 women, 10 of them reported urge incontinence, only 8 of them were performing pelvic floor exercises daily, and I will keep my Kegel comments to myself right now, Um, but they noted that 2 were experiencing UTIs at the time of interview. So at two weeks postpartum, the incidence of stress urinary incontinence was actually pretty similar among the women, hanging out around 13.3% for spontaneous and vacuum delivery, and even lower at forceps at 12.2%. At three months and at one year after delivery, the incidence of stress urinary incontinence was significantly higher in the forceps group, 
so 15.3% and 11% respectively, compared with the spontaneous vaginal delivery, which was at 7.2% and 2.9%, and the vacuum delivery, which was at 7% and 2.8%. The trend showed that the proportion of women developing new onset of urinary incontinence decreased significantly over time in the spontaneous vaginal delivery, that's a P of 0.003, and vacuum delivery groups, which was a P of 0.009, but not in the forceps group, which was a P of 0.2. This article notes that they also controlled for other variable factors that often play a role in new onset stress incontinence. So potential obstetric risk factors for urinary incontinence that are consistently reported in medical literature include things like maternal age, infant birth weight, and the duration of labor, especially that prolonged second stage labor. They report that all of those factors were controlled for. So fellow research nerds, remember that that p-value is the evidence against a null hypothesis. So the smaller the p-value, the stronger the evidence that you should reject the null hypothesis. I'm sure we could make some type of pelvic joke about the smaller the p, the better. It's really low-hanging fruit, but I did remember it that way in college. So for this article clinically, just note that two weeks postpartum, the changes in stress urinary incontinence were equal across the board for all delivery types. Where this changed, though, was at the three-month and the one-year follow-up. So that's something to consider clinically. At three months after delivery, increase in the severity of stress incontinence reached marginal significance after the forceps delivery group compared with the spontaneous and the vacuum delivery groups. And then at one year after delivery, the severity score was significantly higher for the forceps delivery groups compared with the vacuum and the spontaneous vaginal delivery groups. Only four women with urinary incontinence reported that incontinence had moderately or greatly impacted any aspect of their quality of life as determined by the incontinence impact questionnaire. So let's look at some take-home points. For women without a history of urinary incontinence, the incidence of new onset stress incontinence is 13.3% for spontaneous vaginal delivery the incidence of stress incontinence significantly is going to decrease at three months and at one year after delivery. However, urinary incontinence that develops at three months after delivery was way more likely to persist at one year postpartum compared with that urinary incontinence that developed in the immediate postpartum period. Data in the medical literature on the incidence of stress incontinence after forceps and vacuum delivery are pretty limited. In this study, it was found though that stress incontinence after forceps delivery was more likely to be persistent compared with vaginal or vacuum delivery. The mechanism of injury caused by the forceps delivery isn't really clear, but it's likely to be multifactorial. Compression of that pudendal nerve by the forceps blade leading to pudendal neuropathy and the subsequent denervation of the urinary sphincter is possible. Using perineal sonography, one study had determined that there's an increased descent of the urethral vesicle junction in relation to the pubic symphysis after forceps delivery. So injury to that urethral support system is possible, but this study didn't really predict that injury. It's just an aside. So that's it for the article. If you're a John Delancey fan, feel free to stick around as I go over the discussion following on this article. It's not very long. If you don't have time, I'll meet you back here with our next article by Aslan in 2007. So for the discussion with Delancey, it starts out by noting that vaginal birth is the most important modifiable risk factor for pelvic floor injury. This paper addresses a relevant question. Is forceps delivery associated with an increased change that a woman would have urinary incontinence? The authors extended their study to one year, which is important as oftentimes research is completed in that two-month postpartum window and transient incontinence is common. 
So Delancey notes that we should recognize that further research will be needed to see the full lifetime impact of vaginal and forceps delivery. With aging comes muscle weakness and connective tissue aging changes that's going to occur, and the latent injury appears as a clinical problem. So longitudinal studies would be really beneficial. Delancey poses some questions prior to the commentary. One, what was the severity of incontinence as indicated by the severity index? Two, women with incontinence before pregnancy were excluded. A woman experiencing incontinence once a month before pregnancy may have daily incontinence one year after delivery. Three, the authors have said that several obstetric variables such as birth weight and length of second stage of labor are not correlated with development of incontinence. Do the researchers think that their study has sufficient power to make a definitive statement on those issues? And then four, should we really blame the forceps? So he goes into the last question first. Should we blame the forceps? One opinion by researcher DeLee advocated gentle forceps use over a generous medial-lateral episiotomy to prevent pelvic floor damage. Another opinion by Ganey demonstrated three times less urethral detachment is caused with this approach compared with spontaneous delivery. Is it the forceps that's responsible for the difference in damage, or is it the need for the forceps that causes that difference? Comparing vacuum and forceps delivery doesn't resolve this issue entirely because many practitioners are going to use forceps for more difficult deliveries and the vacuums for easier ones. Delancey goes on to discuss how many authors have called attention to the space-occupying size of the forceps compared with the vacuum cup. His personal belief is that this difference is trivial and probably only adds an increased diameter of a few percent to the size of the fetal head. He finds that the force of the forceps on the pelvic floor is probably the most important. He notes that everyone who's done a forceps delivery has typically felt something where they feel something pop. Another researcher, Pierce, measured forces on forceps during delivery and found it averaged 75 pounds. So that's 75 pounds of force applied over a few minutes, as opposed to being distributed over a half hour when the spontaneous delivery occurs. So just something to consider there. Delancey goes on to note that you can't apply such a high pressure when doing a vacuum delivery because the vacuum cup itself would pop off of the fetal head. His vote is that the high forces involved in forceps delivery are at work, rather than the structural difference between the forceps and the vacuum. His thought is that if you reduce the force on the forceps, there may be a reduction in injury. The authors then discussed that a randomized control trial would be well-founded, but very difficult to carry out given the nature of this research. They then go into the challenges with these decisions. Would women wish for an alternative treatment to forceps delivery? In a survey of 241 women, they found that 45% of women would prefer C-section over forceps delivery if the risk of incontinence was 15%. 94% of women said that they would want to be involved in the decision between forceps delivery or a C-section. Obviously, these aren't simple issues, and incontinence is not the only factor to be considered. Is it worth performing 10 C-sections to prevent the need for one birch? C-sections are also not without some risk. Dr. Arya commented back to Delancey's questions, including the discussion on urinary incontinence severity and that pregnant women were excluded as they wanted a very clean study. She also made an interesting comment on the prior mentioned Ganey's research. That paper had shown that the application of forceps had a protective effect on the pelvic floor in terms of pelvic prolapse. 
The author comments in that study, women delivered by forceps with episiotomy were compared with women delivering spontaneously without episiotomy. Therefore, it's not clear whether the protective effect was the result of the forceps, the episiotomy, or both. I think that the discussion brought up a lot of really good points and insight for limitations for research, as well as the important for future research. The authors noted that long-term studies are required to determine whether urinary incontinence would reappear at a subsequent period, such as with a loss of hormonal support during menopause. I work in an OBGYN office, so I love to learn more about studies like these, especially with these discussions on best practice and decision-making regarding patients during their birth experience. So hopefully you thought the discussion was worth sticking around for. Um, But we plan to meet back here for our next article on symphyseal pelvic dysfunction by the authors Aslan and Fiennes. So I hope to see you all listening there. Bye, everyone. Bye.